you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. FOMO fever with names like NVIDIA, R, Meta, and Lilly on seemingly unstoppable runs. Is there still time to jump on board this rally? Or is now the time to take the money and run? We'll debate that. Plus, Timu's Super Bowl ad blitz. The Chinese e-commerce app spending millions to raise awareness and boost business. But will U.S. lawmakers, angered by Timu's ties to the Chinese government, put a roadblock in front of their expansion plans? And later, inside the original F. Fang's New Deal in the Energy Patch, Fang, like Diamondback, the options action on Robinhood ahead of earnings and an infrastructure stock posting tech-like returns. Can it keep climbing? I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the Nasdaq on the desk tonight. Steve Grasso, Karen Feiderman, Dan Nathan, and Bono and Eisen. We start off with this seemingly unstoppable market, the Dow and S&P setting another round of intraday records today, with the Dow closing at an all-time high again. And even the Nasdaq got in on the action, trading at one point at what would have been a record close for the first time since November 2021. All three indices solidly in the green this year, but a couple of individual names have really caught her eye, everybody's eyes, that is. NVIDIA continues its astronomical run at one point today, eclipsing Amazon and market cap, inching toward passing Alphabet. It's added over $550 billion in value just this year. Then there's Arm Holdings up another 30% today, nearly doubling since reporting earnings last week. Eli Lilly, which is up 113% in the past year, now has a bigger market cap than Tesla. And Supermicro, $300 stock just a month ago, is now closing in on 800 bucks a share. So these monster moves got us thinking, is this truly a bull market or is this market just full of bull? Oh. <laughs> Dan. I'm surprised we never heard that before. So she goes <laughs> yeah. to the guy that she thinks is most full of bull. Um, all right, but here's the deal. I, you know, it, really interesting day in the market. I think you guys would probably all agree um, that to have Apple and Microsoft and Amazon and Google close down 1%, have the S&P unchanged, right? At one point, NVIDIA was just raging, right? And the semis kind of did that sort of intraday reversal. Um, but again, unchanged, okay? The problem with NVIDIA here is that they report next week. We can all put it in the calendar. We can all see what the expectations are. Um, we know that it's up at its highs today. It was up 50%. Just do the math on that. So you're just talking about how it overtook Amazon um, in market cap. 50% on the year. That's what happened. We're in the second week of February. That's $900 billion in market cap. I think in all of our collective careers, we've just never seen anything like that in such a short period of time. So it's really hard to kind of get your arms around it. You know, I still have PTSD from the, the, the mm. 2001, 02 sort of bear market when the last time we saw these sorts of ramps in individual names based on the, the sort of excitement that I think most people would agree that, yes, this was a new technology. It was going to change so many industries and that sort of thing. But you pulled forward all of that enthusiasm and it did take two and a half years. It took 14 years for the Nasdaq to get back to those highs from 2000. So. You know, I look at this and I say it's an accident waiting to happen. But here's the good news. If you're a slow money person, not a fast money person, you own 4% of this in your SPY. You own 6% of it in your NASDAQ 100. You are exposed to it. I just think the idiosyncratic risk that exists in this name 
uh, into that print next week is really dangerous. Are we too hung up, though, on the percentage gains in the stock as opposed to looking at the valuation? Because what is different about the time, the period that gave you PTSD in today is that this is a name that's making money. Um, and we couldn't say that about those other companies back then. Yeah, that was going to be my point. It's like th- there's a massive disparity in terms of valuation. Now, agreed in terms of the pace of acceleration, it is concerning because at some point, you know, you, the, the price and expectations do outstrip the actual value. However, comparing those to Y2K, if you will, some of those companies, we're talking about valuation, some of those companies didn't produce income, let alone revenue at all. So that was purely on speculation. When you're looking at names like Lilly and NVIDIA, they truly do have and have shown the ability already with their target adjustable market and uh, the proliferation to the market is that they have an opportunity to be truly transformative Uh, in terms of both the stock market and in terms of how they're affecting consumers. So I do think there is definitely at least some proof of concept there at a very large scale. Not to mention, I think Dan mentioned a couple shows ago when we saw uh, AMD start to stumble a bit and and they're coming in essentially saying that they're going to be competing on price, looking to slice margins. When you see that type of competitor fall, that to me bodes very well. And you juxtapose that, you know, with with the Lilly situation where we've seen other trials that have not gone through. Clearly, they have found a way to wrap up the secret sauce and deliver a product that has, one, a large addressable market, and two, clear barriers to entry because competitors are unable to compete as of now. At some point, yes, competition will take over. But for now, we're essentially saying the valuation still is compelling, and these are companies that are earning and watching uh, earnings expectations be ratcheted higher. Value investor over here owns NVIDIA. So. I do. I do. And I own Lilly as well. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, this sort of action is particularly the first, I don't know, hour or two hours, just a melt up on really what, on nothing. It was it almost reminded me of uh, Archegos. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Where the Viacom, huh. yeah. you know, uh, for no reason. I mean, it was just going berserk what was under it. This is a little different than that, but it did seem up on nothing. We've seen this twice before since the giant transformation and when they made that enormous uh, expectation of revenue just exploding. So I, I think it's going to play out the same way. There's just, I mean, the expectations are so, so high. Can they even put up any number? Is there a number that they can put up that will be enough? I'm concerned that there isn't. Um, and so have to lighten going into it and probably right when it happens. I agree with that. You, you, you have to lighten. She has no other choice. But think about how many times, I think you said the last time on the show, how many times have they surprised to the upside where everyone said it's all in the numbers, right? So we did the valuation. You guys did an excellent job of comparing 2000, the dot-com bubble, to now how it's different. But think about it. They have 85% of the market share. 85% of market share of every sector. Every sector is going to use AI. Whether you're an industrial, whether you're an energy company, whether you're a retail company, you're all used. So when we used to look at technology companies, 95% of that technology was used for that technology company not to be sold to every other sector. Every sector, everyone in this room, the majority of the population with a computer is going to be using AI. They have 85% of the market share. Until they lose that 85% of the market share, this was all pixie dust until they were actually monetizing it. They're making billions in it. 80% of their revenue is from data centers. What do you need for AI? Data centers. They've locked it up. 
Yeah, I mean, listen, and, and you could have made the same argument, you know, 20 some years ago about it was actually data centers yeah. back then, too. It was Sun Microsystems that was actually funding Cisco, a lot of their and Cisco. Cisco was I mean, the they were everything. the same. It, it really doesn't matter, like the profitability. Cisco was a very profitable company back then, but Cisco was a $400 billion company at its highs. We're talking about a company that literally just gained a trillion dollars in a month. OK, so my only point is when I look at a company that has 73 percent gross margins, they have 85 percent market share. Um, it doesn't get any better from there. Like, like, that's it. And when you think about all of these industries that are going to transform using AI, they're going to use it from the hyperscalers. It's going to be AWS. It's going to be Azure. It's going to be Google Cloud. It's going to be a whole host of other players. How do they compete? They compete on price, just like the competitors when they come in, like an AMD and these other ones. Then they're going to go and they're going to design their own chips because they don't want to bring the price down more. It's going to become commoditized. It's going to transform, but it's going to transform over a much larger period, a longer period than most people expect. That is the history of technology. Technology. There's no reason to sure. think that this should be that different. So I'm just saying we we look at every tick in this stuff. We talk about it every night on the show. We debate this sort of stuff. It's kind of a game for us. OK, but it's not different. Human psychology, the way we think about transformative technology, the way we think about investing in it, the way we think about fear and greed, it's the same. So at some point, this will turn. It might turn from two trillion or two and a half trillion right. or whatever. I'm, you know how I'm going to be there? I own stuff for the long term like we all do that we dollar cost average in. And this has become a huge outsized percentage of it relative to what it was a year ago or whatever. Yeah, but, so you have that exposure. And, and I totally get it. And what, what I guess that my point is, is that you can't go from a, a nascent industry to a saturated commodity-based marketplace overnight. So I think you buttoned it up well. It, where, where does that happen? I still think we're early in that cycle. Right. When do you get off the train? Yeah. When do yeah. you think the train is going to stop? So how when, do you assess that? And, and what happens to the markets when that train stops? If the markets are being powered right now, Literally, by AI, AI-powered sort of plays, um, you know, GLP-1 sort of plays. What happens when that music stops? If it does, are we in jeopardy? Well, certainly. I mean, all you have to do is look at SPY versus, like, an RSP. You can see the equal-weighted mm-hmm. versus the SPY and the very concentrated market, <coughs> excuse me, market cap-weighted uh, index or, or ETF. So it is telling you, yes, we do have extreme concentration risk. We do have a handful of names that are leading us higher. Uh, we probably have a lot of trouble under the surface in other subsectors. But for me, that's all the more reason for me to be, if I'm going to be invested, at least right now, to be in those markets. And to Dan and Karen's point, I agree that things do happen in cycles. There is a human psychology. But as Buffett says, things can can remain out of whack much longer than you can remain solvent. So how? what is the opportunity cost to, I mean, at, at $300, we said it was ridiculous. At $400, we said it was ridiculous. At $500, we said it was ridiculous. And, and I'm not saying that you eventually won't be right, but you can lose a lot of money or have foregone a lot of money in that time frame. And so we're here playing fast money, trying to pick the tops and bottoms. And I, I don't blame Karen for lightening the position, but I, I, I do think at some point, um, as informed as we all are, we have to be a, a little humble and and trade the trends and say, listen, whether we necessarily can uh, derive value in the way that we would do traditionally, there is a perceived value around these companies. And it's our job, as one of my mentors told me, do you want to be right or do you want to make money? And you, you have to be in lockstep with where people are allocating money. You have to be in lockstep and what the what the overarching cyclical themes are and probably play those. And perhaps you get, in a, get out a little earlier than maybe someone who wants to write it for the last tick. But to essentially say this is completely uninvestable, I just, I, I'm not sure I can get into that camp. So I'm somewhere in the middle. It's investable. I'm invested in it. But there is that part of it. It is just, you know, I wouldn't say it's a greater fool theory. It's the 
expectations being too much theory that uh, getting back to that, as I said, right. is there a number they can put up? So to me, I think that um, I will be at least a third out by the time they announce. Mm -hmm. Whether I will buy that back, I don't know. Then you got the big tax question of when, you know, you pay an enormous tax and then when do you get back in? I don't know. But I do think, to Steve's point, we're still early in the AI evolution, revolution, whatever you want to call it. Um, we and be Cisco, early in at that the, story. let me just tell you, Cisco in 2000 or 1999 was trading at 200 times earnings. Mm -hmm. Wow. And this is This what, is not. You know, well, it was 30, 30 but that, now whatever, it's like, yeah. well, I don't know, 47. I don't yeah. know where it is now. But, but I think to Dan's point, though, we could be early in the AI story, but we can be later yes. in the NVIDIA story. Well, that, that is true. Right. I mean, there's a difference there. Um, anyway, our next guest suggests NVIDIA's monster rally is evidence. A fear of missing out is forming in the market. Julian Emanuel is Evercore ISI's senior managing director. He joins us here on set. Julian, great to see you. Great to be here. Um, so how do you sort of think about what investors want, how they're positioned, the trend versus the fundamentals of where we are right so now? So I'm going to start by acknowledging two things that Bonowin just mm -hmm. said that is absolutely spot on. Uh, the, the first being, you know, essentially that that it is not about being right. It's about making money in, in a lot of this business. But the second really sort of tying in from the first is that there are times when one has to think about protecting one's capital rather than growing one's capital. And look, our call that there is FOMO in the market. You see it in the options market. Uh, calls are trading at all-time expensive versus downside puts. The sentiment is very, very bullish. The bears have been eliminated, short interest, all of these things. Um, and also, anecdotally, the same clients, a lot of which we know going back to 2000, have begun in the last couple weeks to talk about the, the potential penalty that they might pay for being underinvested. That's the first time that's happened since 2021 uh, for us. That's a bit of an alarm bell. Now, the, uh, the other thing is that the humility of, of this business is really evident in some of these stocks moving. Uh, look, we have been on board in pieces. We like communication services. It's been a great sector. We think there are defensive properties. But all in all, this is a time where when you look at it, the S&P is up 43 percent since the October 22 low. The Nasdaq is up 71 percent. And guess what? Earnings at the S&P level are the same that they were two years ago. NASDAQ, obviously, we know where the earnings power is. But at the broad index level, 22 times is very expensive. We just think it's time to think more about risk than reward in, in, until we get just a little cooling off. It almost, I almost thought you were going to go to, um, you know, we, we want to be long, but we don't necessarily see the fundamentals stacking up. But it sounds like that's that's where your clients are at this point in time when they're feeling forced to be long, at, you know, at all time highs. That, that's part of the message. And, yeah. and again, I think, it, you know, and we compare this to 2000. And the good part about comparing this to 2000 is the valuations are not as extreme. Uh, basically, the, the um, seeds for a downturn started to appear in early 2000. You didn't get the recession till 01. We do not see that yet. But on the other side of the coin is that the concentration of the top five right now is 25 percent. 
That number was 18 percent in 2000. So, Julia, when, when I look at it, there's always two sides of the market, right? So when I look at it, I think people were offsides and people were overestimating how bad things were going to be. So they stayed out of the marketplace. And that was that created a pent up demand. They're worried about the recession that hasn't come yet. Or maybe there was sort of a rolling recession that, they, that we didn't see. That's why the money rushed in. So I always think that you can remain that way or offsides on both sides of the market. We got so defensive and people pulled back so much money from the overall market. Now they're dumping it in. So I don't know if it's fear of missing out as much as, hey, this is the game in town that I have to be on board with because the apocalypse is not coming, at least for the foreseeable future. And and I'm sympathetic to to that to a certain extent, Steve. But at the end of the day, you're still making 5% on cash, okay? And so, so there is an element. True, and you can uh, make 5% in 10 minutes. In, in, right, in two minutes, really, uh, seeing some of these names. Uh, but, th- but that is, is the, the entirety of the calculus that for us says, you know, and we've had this conversation from time to time, is that when you're actually thinking as if nothing can go wrong, which the market in a lot of ways is, that's the time when you have to think about if you got an average size pullback in the average non-recession year, the market pulls back 13% from peak to trough, you need to be a buyer, not a seller. And if you can't see yourself being a buyer down there, you should probably lighten up a little bit here. Julian, you know, we just spent a lot of time talking about psychology. And again, we all have these long memories about these periods. And so when you see some of the activity that's going on right now, it's really easy to say it's different this time. Obviously, we know that. You know, one of the things that I, when we think about NVIDIA, we think about what's going on in semis. I want to go to um, Tesla. This was one of the the, the best secular stories ever, right? We were going to be full EV by here. It was going to have this sort of penetration. They had no competition here. They were the best manufacturer of this sort of stuff. And they had margin in this sort of stuff. And, you know, full self-driving was going to come. And that was going to be really high margin. And here we are. It's been cut in half. It's massively underperformed the S&P 500 over the last three years. It's down 30 percent in the last few months ago. I don't hear any of those folks anymore. Like all, you know what I mean? We hear a few of them, but, um, you know, that's where they this can happen again. You know, the last time, you know, NVIDIA had this sort of mojo, it was AR and VR and Facebook was changing its name. And then it went down 70 percent over the next year and a half. So I'm just curious, like when you talk to clients, are, are they are they cognizant of this sort of thing? And like, do, they, do they have this sort of memory? Well, they do. But again, there's an element of the recency bias that says, you know, I may be in more danger for missing out on on the way up. But look, I would say it's pretty clear, and everyone's been talking about this for weeks, the Magnificent Seven is now the Magnificent Six. And to me, that implies that the gains are becoming even narrower here, and that's something we feel like you need to watch out for. Julian, thank you. It's always good to see you. Julian Emanuel. So, Karen? <laughs> In yes. terms of option strategies, how yes. are you protecting your portfolio? Uh, I sold some more Meta calls today, mm-hmm. um, the, and, and I'm sh- short NVIDIA calls. I have some one by two, which is essentially getting sh- selling some stock if it gets above a certain price. Um, and I'll look at more in the next couple of days. I do, it's interesting, though. Psychologists always tell us the pain of losing money is far greater than the good feeling of making money. And yet, mm. we're in a very different... Uh, do you talk to your shrink about stocks? Hmm. No. Oh, that was things. interesting. Okay. I, mean, I was just curious. That's really interesting. No, that seems like... like a di- yeah. behavioral economic... I mean, yeah, Daniel, I'm, I really... No, I'm just, kidding. Yeah. Uh, they, okay. they do have shrinks for, for trading, though. <laughs> they do. 
It's yeah. not just like a it was you know, billions. billions. <laughs> yes, it's not exactly. just like a billions uh, fantasy. It's an actual real thing. Um, so what, what are you doing, the options guy? No, I, I, honestly, with 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 um, implied volatility where they are, I think you yeah. actually buy protection. I think you actually buy protection. And admittedly, as I've told you, I've even lightened up some of my Nvidia position. I, I just think one, it's a long haul. But I do want to acknowledge both of the both of their points, both of these two panelists' points. I agree with you, things are cyclical. I guess what I'm saying is there's a long tooth round trip. And are you willing to miss everything that goes along with that round trip? So, I mean, that's, that's really what it boils down to for me. Coming up, we are watching Vernado Realty after our shares of the office property manager on the move. After delivering results and numbers out of the quarter next, plus inking an infrastructure deal, Martin Marietta scooping up a building supplier as it looks to cushion its construction operations, the details, and what it can mean for the stock ahead. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. This is Fast Money with Melissa Lee, right here on CNBC. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert. Office property manager Vornado reporting its Q4 results after the bell. The stock is up 2.5% after hours. It was up more than 6% at highs. The Real Estate Investment Trust reporting an adjusted earnings of $0.04 cents a share, revenue of $442 million. FFO did beat um, what was expected, I believe. Karen, what do you make of this quarter? Um, well, it w- wasn't as bad as people thought mm-hmm. it maybe could be. The New York City occupancy wasn't terrible, so that's good. We all know New York City commercial real estate, office buildings, not a great place to be. San Francisco, very, very challenged. But really, the underlying thing here is, what do you think happens to rates? I mean, this is so pinned to rates. All of them are. But um, you have to just make a bet that rates are going to go lower to feel comfortable here. Yeah. How do you feel about rates and whether or not you would be in one of these names? Uh, uh, I don't think I'd be in this name. Um, One, the concentration in New York, and then San Francisco as a secondary market. Uh, rates, I don't think, are going to be falling nearly as fast. And it's not for me, it's not just rates. It's banks' willingness to go on ahead and refi and extend uh, the, the existing terms. And I think they're kind of you know, coming under the gun and, and not being able to do that. Not to mention, Karen and I were just talking about all the dry powder that is there in these distressed asset funds. So there's actually you know, a willingness for banks to now deal to people that can come in and kind of take out the existing equity. So I just think the backdrop is a little bit different. And we've heard we've heard these these data points. One and a half trillion of of uh, commercial debt is supposed to reset by 2025. The bottom of the commercial market is not supposed to hit until the second half of 2024. So you can get in and buy these names ahead of those bottoms, but why would you? It just doesn't make any sense. And who's holding all of that debt? Thirty percent of it is the regional banks. 
So you have to stay away from regional banks. You have to wait until commercial real estate bottoms. And there's a lot of if and then what going on. I mean, even second half of 2024 seems very optimistic. Yeah. I mean, Mizuho had a report saying CRE default rates, they're a lagging indicator. And so what we saw during the great financial crisis, we didn't see them actually peak until 2011. So that's that's a quite a huge lag. I mean, if you're thinking about investing now to see a peak in a year or two years. Some might say it's a long and variable lag. Uh, but, but, but again, because we haven't seen, just look at the home builders right now. They're raging. Do you see them today? And do you see where the 10-year is at 4.17, like the highest it's been in a while? So again, I mean, this is a really tricky, both areas, I think the dynamics are obviously really different. And I actually don't think the commercial real estate thing gets any better anytime soon. I, I, I agree. I think that there was a bounce there when rates went down. But I think that... Um, this is this, the pandemic is way worse than 07 beyond. I mean, right. Yeah. The Structurally, idea, you mean, right? like, yes. yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, way worse. There's a glut of supply. And that's the difference between, you know, the residential or the home builders uh, narrative and this. I mean, the, there is to me, there's no end in sight unless we're going back. Come t- return to work is getting restored to 100 percent of what it once was. If there's even a modicum of hybrid work existing, you can't expect there to be the same occupancy right. rates. There's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. We're living in a material world, and this is a material deal. A building supplier inking a $2 billion construction acquisition as demand in the infrastructure world keeps climbing. And it's not only the deal of the day, one oil producer sinking their fangs into an energy mega merger. More on the crude consolidation ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Martin Marietta laying a strong foundation on the news of an infrastructure acquisition. Shares hitting an all-time high after the company said it would take over part of the operations of Blue Water Raw Materials for about $2 billion in cash. Last week, Martin Marietta divested its South Texas operations for almost the same price. The company is saying in a press release today that the two uh, portfolio-optimizing transactions improve Martin Marietta's product mix, margin profile, and durability through cycles and provide balance sheet flexibility for future growth. So, what do these mergers mean for the material space? Obviously, it's an infrastructure play. Um, and thanks to the Biden administration and uh, Congress, there we have it. This is, has been a big investment thesis. And it takes such a long time for, this do- for these dollars to actually flow through. And mm-hmm. you're starting to see the money actually flow through to the end, to the end uh, companies. But it's still it's hard to really place your bets. And that's why you're starting to see them try to aggregate their positions and try to buy up the uh, the smaller companies. And it, it goes big on geographic regions. So this deal specifically, they wanted exposure to Nashville and Miami. So they wanted the sou- a su- southern eastern part of the U.S. So that fills uh, you know a, a piece of the puzzle for them. If you go Vulcan, they've outperformed Vulcan almost by two to one. So you really have to dig under the hood, dig and 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 look at what you're Very really clever. on. Yeah, I didn't mean it. <laughs> 
Um, Steve Eisman of Big Short fame, this is one of his, uh, you know, this space in general, one of his highest conviction uh, trades. He even said this is probably the closest to, not quite, but <laughs> the highest conviction since the actual Big Short. Yes, the new light, Mr. Sunshine. Exactly. Yes, Steve, right. No, it's, <laughs> I mean, for me, the, I made the bet in United Rentals. If you rent equipment and you have years of people using it, that's a good thing. So, I mean, aggregates is great, too, but this is how I've made my bet. Coming up, an energy deal you can sink your teeth into. Diamondback, ticker fang, biting into an oil rival for a whopping $26 billion. But could there be even more energy M&A on the horizon? The crude reality is next. And Bitcoin hitting the $50,000 level for the first time in over two years. The latest on the crypto climb in an options trade on one platform, giving retail investors access to those Bitcoin ETFs. All that when Fast Money returns. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks closing mixed to kick off the week. The Dow jumping 125 points, closing at a record high. The S&P and Nasdaq both in the red, snapping four-day winning streaks. Shares of Snap jumping nearly 5% today. The social media company announcing it's entered into a private debt buyback transaction. Snap agreeing to buy more than $130 million worth of convertible notes due in 2025 and 2026. And shares of Lowe's also getting a boost of 3% after analysts at J.P. Morgan upgraded the stock to an overweight, upping the price target to $265. Rivian, though, not getting as much analyst love today. Barclays downgrading the EV maker to equal weight, saying a great product may not be enough to avoid an EV winter. Rivian down more than 30 percent so far this year. Meantime, Diamondback Energy soaring over 9% today after the company announced plans to merge with fellow Midland-based, Texas-based company Endeavor Energy Resources. The cash and stock deal is valued at $26 billion, including debt, would make the company the third biggest oil and gas producer in the Permian Basin behind Exxon and Chevron. Here to go inside this deal and other possible M&A targets, Paul Sankey, president of Sankey Research. Paul, always good to see you. So they really had to fend off competitors to win over Endeavor. Yeah, that's right. I mean, how often do you see a company go up 10% on announcing a deal that's going to issue, it's a 60-40 stock deal, so it's a lot of stock is going to come. Obviously, you'd expect Diamondback to trade off on this because of the issuance, but in fact, the stock went up 10%, telling you how much the market and we love the deal. It's a great deal. What does this tell you about um, other assets that are available for sale in the Permian Basin and who else might go after them? Well, there's de- definitely less and less people on the dance floor, as you know. I mean, obviously, Pioneer was a top asset. Endeavor, we knew that Exxon were looking at it. We knew that Shell were looking at it. So this is why it's such a big win for Diamondback. And I think they've got this win because they're based in Midland. They're a very low operate, low cost operator and attractive to Autry Stevens, the owner of Endeavor, because they're a local player. So it's a unique uh, opportunity for Diamondback with such good operations. I think they'll do very well. You then get into Devon, you get into Avintiv, you get into Marathon Oil. Those are the names that really still look like they've got to do something. We think these companies have to get bigger to get higher multiples. Diamondback's done that today. Devon's rumored to be, or at least reported by Reuters, to be buying uh, Enerplus in the Barkin, which is not a deal we like as much because we want everyone to concentrate on single areas. And then Avintiv and, and Marathon Oil is very much an open question. So when you look at the U.S., Paul, where we are outproducing uh, the Middle East on, on oil per, per day, per barrels per day, it seems like we have, the story has gone from let's trace oil with a Chevron or, or, or a uh, Exxon Mobil, and now let's go to the M&A cycle of the story. Because these deals don't necessarily have to have crude moving higher, which is probably a better 
spot for an energy investor to actually have some appreciation of, of, of the worth of the stock. So is that the process that we're in right now where we're just trying to pick the next takeout candidate versus the move in, in crude? Because it doesn't seem like that's going anywhere. Well, the, the whole takeout trade has been completely upside down because what you've seen is companies have sold themselves for no premium, often because the CEO is cashing in. That's not good for shareholders. This one's a, another example of that because Diamondback has gone up on the deal, obviously, and Endeavor's not uh, uh, quoted, so there's no, no movement there. But essentially, it hasn't been, it's been a bad oil tape for people who are hoping to get taken over because you haven't seen any premiums. Having said that, the boring good thing about this tape is that we're at $80 Brent. The big oils, the Chevrons, the Exxons, are paying out the most they've paid out in their history, including 2022, which was a you know, crazy year for prices. And so what you've seen here as well is the expiration of production companies blew out their cash return and returned to shareholders in 22 and are now falling off. These bigger companies that have emerged, which would be Exxon, Chevron, Conoco, now Diamondback, are all actually ramping their, their cash returns. And they're ramping them, as I've said before on the show, to a point where they're outright attractive against any stock in the market, which is what we've been waiting for. And, and we judge that as a 10% sustained cash return to shareholders. If you have a 10% cash return to shareholders sustained, your basis is returned to you within eight years, at which point you own an option on the future of oil. And we think that's a great option to own. So it's not a, a near-term trading call. It's a long-term structural attraction that you see Warren Buffett buying into Oxy. We know why. Paul, we've got to let you go. Thank you so much. Paul, thank Sorry you for your research. Um, we've got a news alert here we want to get to on JetBlue. Carl Icahn taking a nearly 10% stake in this airline. Phil LeBeau joins us now on the Fast Line with some details. Hey, Phil. Hey, Melissa. It's a 9.91% stake in JetBlue that Carl Icahn has taken. Uh, it's unclear at this point what his play is. Is his play, look, this is a wildly underperforming airline stock relative to their peers over the last two years. Uh, and therefore, it's ridiculously cheap. Is his play, this has been an airline that has been poorly managed over the last couple of years, making uh, a bet that it had to unwind in terms of the Northeast Alliance with American Airlines, uh, proposing a costly merger uh, with Spirit Airlines that was shot down once in court and is under appeal right now and may not get uh, approved um, on appeal. So that is the question for investors at this point. It's a heck of a way to start your first day as CEO for JetBlue's new CEO, Joanna Garrity. Today is her first day as CEO, taking over for Robin Hayes. And remember, we talked with her after JetBlue reported its fourth quarter earnings. And I said to her, what, what is your game plan here? Short of the proposed merger with Spirit and the appeal. And she said, getting back to the basics making more money per flight on the markets where we have an advantage, where we can do well. And really getting back, in, back to the blocking and tackling of doing better as an airline, which is really what JetBlue made its name on way back in the day before it started getting caught up in how do we merge, how do we grow, how do we strike an alliance with another airline. So again, Carl Icahn taking a 9.91% stake in JetBlue. Melissa, back to you. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau, we see the quote there on, on the bottom of your screen. Uh, JetBlue shares, according to Icon, were undervalued and represented an attractive investment opportunity. He apparently is also seeking board representation uh, on the board of JetBlue. So it's an interesting one. 
given that there's a new CEO that is coming in, that obviously no uh, acquisitions, no M&A can be done in this space. So what is that playbook at this point for Icon? What do you think, Karen? Yeah, I mean, he does talk about getting a board position. Mm-hmm. So that's big. I think um, you can see what he paid for stock in the last 60 days. $5.49 was where he sort of started, uh, even lower than maybe that. Um, I don't know what he could do. Uh, he's... He's a pain to have on the board, right? <laughs> I, I don't know if yeah. it would be him or somebody else, but um, I, I doubt he was going to take it over. It's interesting. We wake up every Monday now. We have merger Mondays. Um, so we have a lot of strategic interest. We have activists who are pretty active. You know, we have, uh, you know, the S&P at all-time highs. You know, you mentioned the equal weight S&P. I don't know if they can throw that thing up. That just broke out of this consolidation. Russell 2000s rallied 6%. Everything feels great, man. Like, I'm serious. <laughs> you know, like, unemployment is Your at 50 years must be burning. low. The inflation <laughs> is, is getting tamed. You know, interest rates are high. But you know what? Things are working in this environment. You know what I mean? Like this is sarcasm. If you're listening to us on the radio and can't see Dan's snarky face. No, but I'm just saying. Like I see you. You guys are seen. Okay. Like I just want you guys all to know that. One tiny new thing: new uh, rules on 13D. Um, you, you have to report within five days of going over. Oh, five days. Yes, it's new. Oh, so yeah, I guess because he he made several purchases in January and February. Yes. So, yeah. Right. Interesting. Very interesting. At the very least, we know he's going to come in and shake things up. To what extent he's mm-hmm. able to do that, given the restrictions that are that are within the space, are TBD. But um, I, it would probably be uneasy to assume that new role and then have it announced subsequently that Icon's going to be joining you, um, whether you invited him or not. Uh, am I allowed to buy it right now uh, from the desk? Why? Because I, yeah. I think I think it's going to. I, I, this is this is him just making a. I, I, I like the way I, Icon rolls. He, he he rolls just like a trader. You you'll appreciate that, right? Yeah. He rolls like a trader. Yeah. He looks at it on a chart, and he thinks, "Wow, the spirit deal was off. It's being appealed." As Phil said, maybe there's a little light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe I could crimp. Maybe I could tuck. Maybe I could do this. But it's he's going to make the stock move higher. Well, he's fu- he's really funny. That yeah. I appreciate. Although Transworld Airlines, which was like if, oh. way way long ago. I think did not end up. I think so. It yeah. was not a good trade for no. him. Well, we'll see about this one. Coming up, the crypto craze continues. Bitcoin crossing above 50000 for the first time since December 2021. We'll break down why that's huge for Robinhood and how the options market is setting up ahead of the company's next earnings report. Plus, China's Pinduoduo making a major push into U.S. markets with not one, not two, but three Super Bowl ads for its consumer app, Timu. What's next for one of China's biggest companies right after this? Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin crossing above $50,000 for the first time in over two years today. The crypto is now up seven days in a row. Bitcoin's recent strength comes alongside strong flows into the new spot ETFs launched just last month. More than $1.1 billion coming in just last week, according to CoinShares. The recent action boosting shares of trading platform Robinhood and options traders are taking notice ahead of the company's next report tomorrow. Mike Co has the action. Hey, Mike. Hi there. Yeah. So the options market implying some pretty big moves, 11% the day after they report and probably closer to 14% higher or lower by the end of this week. We saw about four times the already elevated average daily options volume and calls out pace puts by more than two to one in the busiest contract that we saw today were the weekly 12 strike calls that expire this coming Friday. We saw about 27,000 of those, give or take, trading for about 83 cents. Buyers of those calls are betting that the stock could rally 7 8% plus by the end of this week. 
Thanks, Mike. Mike Coe coming up. An ultra-discount retailer spending big bucks. Timu scoring its own touchdown with Super Bowl commercial blitz. What you should know about the Chinese company and the catchy jingle you can't get out of your head. More Fast Money in two. Feels like a dream. Feels like magic. This is one of several $7 million ads for Timu, which aired during the Super Bowl last night. If you hadn't heard of the online ultra-discount retailer, you probably have now. Timu is owned by China's Pinduoduo, and after its commercials uh, ran last night, the company reported a huge surge in app downloads. Searches also spiked for, quote, how to shop like a billionaire, which is their tagline. So just what does this mean for consumers and for online competitors? And what about all the red flags raised after all those ads aired? Here to discuss is CNBC's Gabrielle Fonrouge, who covers the space, has been reporting extensively on these discount retailers. Gabrielle, you know, what I notice is that um, it's almost like they just want to go after the market share. They want to get in the minds of the American consumer. And lawmakers can try and, and pick their fights if they can. But once they get embedded in the American consumer, it's going to be a, a tough road for lawmakers to say, you know what, you can't have that anymore. That's exactly right, Melissa. I mean, they've just been doing this ad blitz for a while now. The Super Bowl really kind of um, topped all of those efforts off. But like, Americans are already shopping on Timu, Temu, however you might say it. It's already here. And this could, I mean, whether or not it's going to pose a threat to other discounters like Walmart, Target, your apparel players like Burlington, TJX, things like that. I mean, it depends on whether or not Americans really want to shop like a billionaire. If they're going to keep returning to this app, how good the items are. We kind of seen flashes in the pan like this before with Wish, the online dollar store. Their stock is down about 75% since it IPO'd at a $14 billion valuation. So too early to tell, but lawmakers, good luck trying to rein them in at this point. But they could close the loopholes when it comes to the amount of goods that can be shipped into the U.S. without taxes, correct? Yes. Yeah, so... Timu is like Shein in the sense that they are uh, benefiting from this de minimis um, exemption, right? So they're shipping directly from their factories, directly from the manufacturers. And by doing that, they are able to avoid import duties. And they're also able to avoid further scrutiny from U.S. officials. So as long as the packages are valued under $800, which most of the things from Timu are, um, they're not going to get screened the same way. And so lawmakers are really concerned about forced labor in Timu's supply chain, and that those things are getting in without, you know, getting caught. So lawmakers have said that it all but guarantees that any item from Timu coming into the U.S. is made with slave labor. But until they close that exemption, those items are going to keep coming in. Yeah. Karen, has this been a concern for you in terms of Amazon or Target or, you know? Well, you Target. Know? I mean, it's uh-huh. sold Target partially because I feel like they could pick off Target's sort of higher margin business. That's a concern. Are they operating at a profit and if not, they are. No, it, we don't know too we much know, about, right, because, okay. I mean, they're a private company. I mean, they're owned by PDD, which right. is public, but we don't break that out. Um, some reports have said that they were at a loss last year or in the last quarter. Um, but that's the thing. At that scale, I mean, when you're, I mean, what margin do you really have? And to ship things by air right. at that cost, I mean, you're losing money with that's every shipment. That's what but you make it up in volume, right? But exactly. no, what do they, at some point, though, I mean, I don't know how much Pinduoduo would want to lose, 
I mean, that's, yeah, but when you do an ad blitz like this, I mean, last year, they quietly opened, they quietly launched around September of 22. Nobody really knew about them. Then they make a big splash with a Super Bowl ad. And by the end of 2023, they were the number one most downloaded app in the U.S. So they made huge gains. And now they blitzed us last night with three different ads. If you didn't know about Timu before, you know about it now. So perhaps, I mean, they're going to get that volume that's going to get them to profitability, that's going to get this to be a, a sizable and good investment for the overall company, but that's a lot of ifs. Yeah. Gabrielle, thanks for coming by. I appreciate it. Gabrielle Fonrouge, CNBC.com. PDD um, outpacing now. Baba as the largest company in China. In yeah, and they have a ton of cash. So whatever they're losing right now or how many tens of billions or millions they spent on Super Bowl ads, I mean, for them to kind of find a foothold in the U.S. And your question is a really good one. Is like once it becomes entrenched in user behavior here in America, TikTok is a great example. The Biden of, re-election yeah. campaign is on TikTok yeah, now. Yeah, I saw so that it's a national night. security <laughs> yeah, threat. Yeah. Um, no yeah, government official can have TikTok on their phone, but they have an account. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Congress for you. <laughs> Coming up next, final trades. Final trade time, Steve. Jeff Blue followed Carl in. Let's see how it all works out. Karen? Yes, I'm sticking always with my man, Jamie Dimon. I like J.P. Morgan here. <laughs> not to like. Always, really? You're always. just sticking with him, huh? Yeah. Uh, SMH puts, good way to probably head long semis. And Bono and Eisen. Solanus, I expect my minimum traditional automakers to continue. All right, and uh, keep an eye on Jeff Blue. Not, not just Grossless final trade, but I think the stock is up more than 17% after hours. Thanks for watching Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.